That was uh, music by William Cornish, Ah, Robin, Gentle Robin, and that would have been from the court of Henry VIII. Today's podcast, podcast number five, I'm calling the two of several ironies of Henry VIII. As a young man, Henry was reported to be rather athletic and fetching. He was a capable musician. He could play the lute, the harp, the horn, the lyre, and he was even known to have composed several tunes himself. On a visit to England in 1519, Sebastian Justinian, the Venetian ambassador, claimed that Henry is extremely fond of tennis, and this is a quote, at which game it is the prettiest thing in the world to see him play, his fair skin glowing through a shirt of the finest texture. Loving the game, Henry had his own blue and black velvet slippers made for whenever he'd play. Henry, as king, would change significantly in the years between Justinian's account of a young man in his 20s to the time when he was a man in his 50s, 1540s. The years spanning from 1509 to 1547 would see England transform, change as well, with the national break with Rome, the adoption of Protestantism by a large part of the population, and Henry himself would undergo a significant transformation over this period as well. He would personally change. It would be a path that would see his coffers depleted, his coinage debased even, and many of the lands that his father had acquired sold. He would see five wives come and go, and a sixth who would carry him to his deathbed. In this relatively short span, he would also see his waistline go from something that approximated his age in his late 20s to an impressive 54 inches, one inch shy of the 55 years that he reached at his death in 1547. Indeed, if graceful in his youth, Henry could also be ruthless. Among his first acts as king was to take his father's advisors, Edmund Dudley and Richard Epson, as I've mentioned, in 1509, and commit them to the tower on charges of treason. Both men, as I again have mentioned previously, would be beheaded the following year. And his reign was in some ways to begin as a distancing act. He would benefit from his father's indefatigable efforts to build a financial foundation uh, of building all of that wealth uh, that would go on to serve the Tudors. But he would also seek a court that was very removed from that of his father's, a very different type of court. Unlike his father, who observed the tilt yard from afar from the stands, Henry VIII would become a champion of jousting. He wouldn't be an observer of the sport. Rather, he would perform in the dangerous game himself. He would play with nobles on horseback, and in some cases, with new suits of armor, he would be driven off of his horse and drive his friends off of their horses. Unlike his father, who had sought to limit appointments and impose fines almost endlessly on the nobility, Henry VIII would elevate young nobles, and especially those who would be willing to suit up and joust with him in the tilt yard, those who would be willing to entertain his fantasy of becoming a militant king in the fashion of his medieval predecessors. Henry's courtiers 
in many cases were the sons of those who had fought in the Wars of the Roses, and they were expected to be knights for their king, to be both poets and warriors, to be champions of chivalry. And war would be among Henry's first acts as king. France was at the time of Henry's accession, when he was just 17, in a quarrel with the papacy. And the promise of conquest on the continent proved far too appealing for the young king to resist. He was committed to emulating his ideal form of kingship, who was, in his case, the young Henry V, who had won at Agincourt in 1415, when he was himself in his late 20s. And promising Henry the military glory that he sought was the first great administrator of his reign, Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey was the son of an Ipswich butcher. He had enjoyed a meteoric rise. He showed great promise in schooling and thus became Bishop of Lincoln, a cardinal to the Pope and eventually Archbishop of York. In 1509, Wolsey became the king's almoner. This coincided with his reign, his chaplain, and he would, in the coming years, become his leading administrator, and indeed his main point man for arranging and preparing for the wars that Henry so desired. In 1513, Henry set off for France, hoping to advance and emulate Henry V again. By the 16th of August, Henry took to the field at the Battle of the Spurs, joining the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I to lay siege to Tehran. Success came by August 22nd, and so Henry continued east on to Tournai, where more minor successes came by late September. But it was in early September when news reached Henry of Scottish plans to invade the south of England that he stopped in his tracks. News was that the Scots would again come to the aid of France, and that they would march south and invade England. And this affair provides one of the first of the two ironies I'd like to consider today. The irony being that Henry is in the midst of pursuing his quest for military glory. And while he's off playing warrior king in France, the Scots did indeed cross the border. But there to meet them was not an English king at the head of his armies, but instead the English-Spanish queen, Catherine of Aragon, who met the Scottish army of some thirty to 40,000 at Flodden Field. Thus it was Catherine the queen who led an English army to defeat the Scots decisively on the 9th of September, 1513. It was a battle that would see most of Scotland's nobility along with 10,000 infantry killed. To give you the an ex, sense of the extent of the losses, there were 10 Scottish earls, 9 lords, and 29 other pieces of the landed gentry, members of the landed gentry, who died. But the greatest loss of all was, in fact, the king himself, James IV, who was killed during the battle. After this, Catherine of Aragon sent a messenger to France to personally deliver to her king, James IV's bloodied coat and gauntlets. Thus, while Henry was off playing conqueror, his wife, along with other important English nobles, including Thomas Howard, had achieved one of the single greatest victories in English history. 
Henry and his cardinal would continue to seek to elevate England's status, and by 1518 they made great progress with the Treaty of London, a peace pact designed by Wolsey to secure for England a place as a broker, in essence, a broker of peace between Valois France, France of Francis I, and between Maximilian I, and soon thereafter Charles V, leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. It was, as Pope Leo X hoped, a peace that would allow Europe's kingdoms to stop fighting amongst themselves and instead turn their attention to the threat posed by the Ottoman Empire. By 1520, England and France were ready to display their new peace with a celebration. Henry VIII and Francis I thus met in June at what is known as the Field of Cloth of Gold, an encounter that was as much for pomp and ceremony as it was for tournament and display. There was jousting, feasting, and endless games, and tents built temporarily to house the feasters, to house those who were participating, who were observing, who were engaged in this great display. But more than tents, a temporary palace was built by Francis I. It was meant to be the show to end all shows. Henry VIII brought with him five gold-plated monkey statues that had been gifts from the Ottoman Empire, all part of a makeshift palace that he also built on the spot. Francis and Henry spent considerable time showing one another up by trying on new armor, in some cases with it made almost entirely of gold, in some cases encrusted with jewels or pearls, and trying on new expensive outfits, which included cloth of gold. At one point, they eventually decided, after an archery tournament in which Henry apparently won, to wrestle. And all accounts suggest that Francis succeeded, defeating all six feet of Henry. The fun and games, of course, continued. They brought with them huge royal retinues and composers to entertain with music. William Cornish, which you heard at the beginning of this, was one of them. It was the composer that Henry brought with him to the Field of Cloth of Gold. This seemed a fitting celebration for peace, a peace brokered and arranged for entirely by Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, who was, of course, a cardinal of Rome. Remember, Rome appoints cardinals. And it seemed at the time that there was little the cardinal could not achieve for his king. Henry was to be a peacemaker as much as a warrior and defender of the faith. And it's this last part, this last role that Henry began to take very seriously by 1520. He began to present himself as a beacon for Rome, a defender of the Pope and Christendom, a defender of the universal faith, of Catholicism, of the sacraments, of everything that would make him seem a pious prince. Henry had heard about what was happening on the continent, and in particular he had heard rumors from the German states of Maximilian, and again soon of Charles V, where news of the writings of Martin Luther, the one-time Augustinian monk, had sent a ripple through society. The once-defiant monk had become a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg and enjoyed at the time protection from Frederick the Wise of Saxony, one of the elector states of Germany, elector states which elect a Holy Roman Emperor. And he had from this time begun to issue biting criticisms of the papacy. Luther's infamous 95 Theses from 1917 in particular had taken 
aim at what was increasingly seen as a problematic sale of indulgences. And here we must take a brief foray into Christian theology. Christians believed in the existence of an afterlife, of course, but before reaching that space, they would be expected to linger in purgatory, in a place which, not unlike hell, was filled with fire and pain, a place where souls would pay for their sins in life. And over a lifetime, many sins could be accumulated, and thus your time in purgatory could be quite long. However, unlike hell, purgatory, the space for purging sin, was temporary. One way to get your time in purgatory down was through the intercession of prayer, by prayer of the living. This was a powerful tool, an intervention for the soul, weighed down and meant to spend an unknown duration in the pains of purgatory. Henry VII, for instance, had been so concerned with the matter of his worldly sins and thus his time in purgatory, perhaps one might note the cardinal sin of greed, that he paid some 250 pounds, a very significant amount at the time, for 10,000 masses to be held for him, a way to hopefully speed him through the pains of purgatory. On a wider scale in terms of the Catholic Church, we see an effort to sell indulgences. Indulgences which were, as an academic friend of mine from the University of Birmingham suggests, in a way, passports to paradise. Indulgences were promises of prayer. Promises of prayer that would do much like what Henry VII had hoped masses would do for himself, reduce one's time in purgatory. It just so happened that the sale of indulgences at this time increased rapidly under Pope Leo X. And their sale, as it turned out, coincided with some rather significant revisions that were being made to St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Sales had become so widespread that a common jingle could be heard. A coin in the coffer rings and a soul from purgatory springs. It was thus widely understood that the papacy was using indulgences and the sale of indulgences to help fund renovations to the church. This was many, one of the many concerns that would, of course, define the Reformation. And this was one of the many corruptions that were at the top of Martin Luther's mind in 1517. The decline of priestly learning was another, the lack of Latin known by priests in particular. Of the hoc est corpus meus, this is my body of the Eucharist, of mass, bastardized in many cases, in terms of Latin, we get the hocus pocus, a broken hoc est corpus meus, a hocus pocus of magic and transubstantiation. It is this and other examples that show us how corrupt things seemed and why critics like Martin Luther were concerned to the point of issuing writing. Criticism of corruption was one matter but it was Luther's writings of another sort that truly brought the ire of Rome. Indeed, possibly the f most dangerous of these in the eye of the church were his writings about the power of secular leadership and of the extent to which princes might oppose foreign rule and not least papal decrees and appointments. 
Thus, Luther produced his essay on secular authority, something worth taking a look at if you get a chance. But Luther was concerned with other things, with marriage. And in particular, he suggested that it was not a sacrament marriage, but rather that it was a state for everyone. In other words, he was claiming that anyone should enjoy marriage, clergy or otherwise. In what must be considered a second great irony of Henry's young years, he took Luther's ideas about marriage, taking the matter so seriously as to write his own treatise. The Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, or the defense of the seven sacraments, in which he both defended the sanctity of marriage and the Pope's position as the head of the universal church. Henry's great scholarly effort did not go unnoticed, and as a result of his writing, Pope Leo granted him the title of Fide Defensor in 1521, of Defender of the Faith. To this day, you can pick up a British coin and see the capital letters F.D. next to the name of the monarch represented. It's a vestige of the time, a suggestion that the monarch would be the fide defensor ad infinitum, the defender of the faith forever. But the meaning would, of course, be different for Henry. It would be for Henry to remain the defender of the faith, a title that the popes would soon strip away, but that the king would retain in a different capacity as head of the Church of England. Between the bouts of war and peace with France and with his growing court of chivalrous friends, matters were changing rapidly. Two years after the Field of Cloth of Gold, and just one year after Henry became Defender of the Faith, a proponent of Catholic rule as opposed to the new dangerous thoughts of the Reformation, another young and important woman arrived in England. She was to be an attendant to Henry's wife, to Catherine of Aragon to the queen who had defeated the king of Scotland at Flodden. It was, of course, the young Anne Boleyn, arrived from time touring courts in Europe, from finishing her training as the ideal attendant in courts to kings and queens. She would be coming years, she would in the coming years move much closer to Henry himself. By 1527, he found that he was infatuated eager to make Anne his mistress, as he had already done with her sister. With her proximity to the king, the great ironies of his early years would come into full focus. It would be Anne who would undo Henry's greatest servant, and it would be Anne who would expose the faults of his fide defensor title, and it would be Anne who would push aside his faithful queen, Catherine, the queen who had already produced for Henry in 1516 a daughter, Mary, who would herself be Queen of England, and a queen who would, if we think back, in great irony, be the one who achieved the real military glory of King Henry VIII's reign. It's to the second half, to the time with Anne and after, that we must turn next. <laughs>